This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am excited to welcome my friend today, Rob Jones, to the program. A little bit about Rob. Rob Jones is a Marine Corps veteran, motivational speaker, and Paralympic athlete. In 2010, while serving in Afghanistan, he was severely wounded in action by an improvised explosive device where he lost both of his legs above the knee. Rob has gone on to do some incredible things, uh, some incredible physical um, tasks, and some of them with the Travis Manning Foundation. And we're super excited to talk to him about that and more today. Welcome to the program, Rob. Hey, Ryan. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to, to be a guest and to talk with you. Yes. Well, we're excited to have you. And, you know, I'm, I was trying to think, I've known you, I, I was trying to think what we first met. We actually met at um, a Spartan Leadership Summit for mm-hmm. the Manning Foundation. And I think that was like four years ago now. It's been a little bit. Yeah, was it before I ran all the marathons or after? I don't even remember. I think it was before. No, it was after. It was after. I don't remember. <laughs> right after <laughs> running the marathons. Yeah. So it was, and, uh, okay. Yeah. 2017, 2018. So a couple years ago. Yeah. And I remember meeting you and I was so impressed by you. Uh, and we had a great conversation and, and we started talking about the idea of you doing something with TMF and, and you running. Mm with TMF and, and what led into you um, actually running 10 9-11 Heroes runs across the country, um, which was awesome and so inspiring. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I want to bring it back to the beginning. Well, I, you know, first, you grew up in Virginia, graduated yeah. Virginia Tech in 2007, but I think it was your, was it your junior year that you um, joined the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I had, um, I started college in computer science and I kind of wasn't doing very well. I wasn't a very good student in college, to be honest with you, and uh, wasn't doing well. I started to feel a little bit like a failure, started feeling isolated, didn't have that many friends. Um, this kind of had a little bit of a crisis and, you know, serendipitously, a buddy of mine, who came from a Marine Corps family had joined the Marine Corps the year before he had kind of had a similar um, come to Jesus moment where he wasn't doing too well either. And so he decided he joined the Marine Corps and I talked to him about that and he told me that he, he felt great. He was loving his life now. So I did a little bit of research and read this book called Brotherhood of Heroes about the battle of Pele Lu in World War II. And that book just struck a chord with me. And I think maybe two, three days later, I was, down at MEPS, uh, getting sworn in, signed a contract before I really even told my parents. <laughs> wow. And do you have a, a, a background in the military in your family, or was this just something that it was introduced to you from your friend? 
Not particularly. I, my dad was drafted in Vietnam, um, but he stayed stateside. He never, he didn't go to Vietnam. Uh, he never really talked about it a whole lot. I think my grandfather was in the Air Force, didn't really talk about the, that a whole lot. Um, so I guess, you know, I have relatives that were in the military, but wasn't really something that we, I knew about until after uh, I had, you know, been in the Marine Corps for a while. And when you joined, um, how did your parents feel about that? <laughs> Scared. Um, I think my dad's reaction was, I said, Dad, I joined the Marine Corps. And he said, why? <laughs> uh, and I think my mom kind of had a similar reaction. Um, you know, we were, it was 2007. So we were in the, in the thick of, or it was 2006. So we were in the thick of, uh, of war. So, I mean, any, any time a son tells his parents that he joined the Marine Corps during war, um, I think they kind of, you know, what they're going to immediately assume is going to happen. You're going to go to war and there's a chance you're going to get killed. Right. Absolutely. Um, so you joined the Marine Corps, you graduate from Virginia Tech in 2007. And then that following year in 2008, you're in Iraq. Yeah. Um, so I joined a reserve unit in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, uh, with the intention to follow, uh, finish at Virginia Tech and then apply to OCS uh, and become an officer. Uh, before I got that chance, my reserve unit said they were taking volunteers to deploy to Iraq. And so I, had, I was kind of faced with this choice. Do I want to continue the officer route or do I want to go to war right now? And, you know, I joined the Marine Corps to go to war because that all these things I was seeking, like courage, brotherhood, selflessness, the, the, the traits that I identified in the Marines of uh, the Battle of Peleliu, I knew that they, they had gained those traits from going to war. And so that's what I wanted. That's what I was seeking. And so I wanted to go to war as soon as possible. And so uh, I took that opportunity. And we deployed to Habania. Yeah. And what was that first deployment like for you? Did you find what you... Um, you know, I, those you know in the sense of that brotherhood and everything that you were looking for in a roundabout way i mean it was in 2008 uh habania while i think in 2006 habania was really hot um kind of a lot at the same time uh the battle of ramadi was going on but by 2008 it had been uh, mostly pacified so we spent most of our deployment uh building iraqi police stations because we're a combat engineer unit building Iraqi police stations, and then going around and finding weapons caches that had been buried in the ground. So um, Al-Qaeda in the area, they had gotten their hands on a lot of munitions from the Iran-Iraq war, buried them throughout Habania. And so we would get an intelligence tip from a local Iraqi saying, there, we think that there's a, a cache of these weapons buried in the middle of town somewhere. So we would go out, set security, and me and another engineer would take metal detectors and sweep the entire vacant lot for example um until we either found the munitions or we decided there wasn't anything there and so i didn't get to experience combat but i certainly became part of the brotherhood and i had you know i exemplified courage and selflessness in, in different ways um and i felt proud when we were on our way back i felt proud of the job that we had done because we had contributed to the um, the build phase of the clear hold build strategy in that we were helping the Iraqi police become self-sufficient and we were helping to make the streets of Habani a little bit safer getting rid of these munitions. Now on that deployment, was there um, anyone that you were with that was injured or killed? Yeah, so 
there were two casualties um, on our deployment. I didn't know the two guys that were killed, but they, and they were the only IED strike for the entire deployment, um, but they hit a very old IED in Habania, uh, in a Humvee, and, and these two guys were killed. Um, and it really, yeah, it, by that time, nothing had really been happening. So we kind of started to get a little bit of an expectation that, you know, nothing was going to happen. And then these two Marines were killed and that kind of brought us back to earth. Um, and that, yeah, there may not be much going on right now, but there's still IEDs out there and anything can happen at any moment. And you get back from that deployment and when you get back, are you, because I've, I've heard, you know, the daughter of Marine, the sister of Marine, I'm around a lot of Marines and, you know, and I know that a lot of men and women that were coming back, you know, they, they, they felt disconnected from, you know, they wanted to get back. They wanted to get back in the fight. They want to be back um, being a part of the solution in Iraq and Afghanistan. Did you feel that itch when you got back or did you feel like your, your, you've been satisfied with that deployment and, you know, were you looking for something, what came next? No, I didn't, I had, I didn't feel satisfied. I mean, as much as I was proud of what we had done, I didn't experience the combat. And then, you know, when you're a Marine, that's what you want to do. You want to go kill some bad guys. You want to get into some fights. Um, and so, yeah, shortly, shortly after we got back, my unit announced that they were sending a volunteer platoon to Afghanistan and me and a couple other guys uh, that I went to Iraq with, we pushed, you know, we immediately signed up for the Afghanistan deployment because we knew that the war the fighting had kind of moved from Iraq at that point to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we wanted to go. That's where we knew the fighting was going to be because we wanted to, um, we wanted to go kill some bad guys like any good Marine does. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so let's talk about that deployment to Afghanistan and, and specifically the day you were injured. And, and that was in 2010. What was the date of your injury? It was July 22nd. July 22nd. So walk us through that day. So my specialty um, in Afghanistan, because I had the metal detector and combat engineers historically are trained in um, obstacle clearance and mine field placement and defeat, um, we kind of naturally had the, the job of uh, IED detection. And so the way that would work is any time that a patrol that we were with uh, felt like there was a, a likelihood that there was going to be an ID in a certain spot. Uh, they would send the combat engineer with a metal detector through the, there first, and that combat engineer would mark a path, a safe path, through that area, and then everybody else would traverse through the area following that path, and then we'd continue on. So the best example um, of this would be crossing a bridge. So if we were going to go north, and there's a big river, we're not going to swim across it in 80 pounds of gear. The Taliban knows that we're going to have to use the bridge. And so they put their limited number of IDs that they have on the side of that bridge. So that's how we would kind of know that there, it was likely that there was going to be uh, an IED there. So a choke point. And then anytime there was one IED strike, there was likely there was going to be two or three more. So secondary and tertiary IEDs um, would be the other big indicator, any kind of choke point or in that situation. So on that particular day, we were doing a push into Taliban territory. So we were basically just 
walking, I think, northwest uh, of our position and seizing compounds as we went. And if the Taliban shot at us, we'd shoot back and kill them or they'd retreat or whatever. Um, and we were you know, planning to go to a certain long longitude and latitude and then stop and then uh, kind of refit. Uh, and around one o'clock, we, we took a break. Uh, my squad that I was with took a break. And when we stood up, uh, the point man actually stepped on an IED. And luckily for all of us, the IED that he stepped on, it malfunctioned. And so it did what's called a low order detonation. So just the black cap exploded. And the blasting cap is this kind of half of a pen sized cylinder of explosives that's inserted into this jug of homemade explosives that's a much bigger charge. So it's kind of just like a little firecracker went off underneath his foot. And he was uninjured. But like I said, anytime there's an IED, one IED, there's likely to be two or three. And so it became my job to guide us through that, that danger area now. And so I grabbed my metal detector and I started making my way through. And, um, you know, one second I am swinging my metal detector back and forth, listening for indicators from the metal detector. The next second, you know, in a split, I'm like, it's like I was teleported onto my back, uh, screaming and kind of, I had total vision, um, you know, all, all I could hear was like a loud ringing in my screams. All I could see was uh, that tunnel vision leading up to the sky. And I could, all I could smell and taste was like this uh, dusty smell of like that. Explosive kind of have a, a unique chemical stench that is kind of hard to describe, but it's, it's kind of chemically smell. So I could smell that and dust. And then my legs felt like, uh, felt like they had fallen asleep. You know, when you fall asleep on your arm, Mm -hmm. and it, it goes to sleep and it kind of hurts because you've been on it for so long kind of felt like that except magnified by about you know 100 times or something like that um and from there i was unconscious for about 20 seconds woke up and then and my fellow marines were telling me it was going to be good they had to sweep to me because there might be another a third or fourth ied there so they had to get another engineer over to make his way to me and then, you know, they, they got to me, put the tourniquets on, put me on a stretcher, loaded me into a tank, the tank met a helicopter, and I was casivacked uh, out of there. And do you know, I mean, this is a silly question, but do you know at that point the extent of your injuries? Do you know, are you just in shock, or do you actually know what's happened to your legs? For the first 20 seconds after I woke up, it was kind of like my mind had disconnected from my body. So I I was like I was experiencing my body's reactions, the screaming and all this stuff to the IED strike, but I wasn't telling it, you know, I wasn't saying body, inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale. I was just kind of doing it on its own. So I think my mind had kind of shut itself off um, from that. Um, but after yeah, 20, 30 seconds of that, uh, the endorphins or, you know, whatever hormones get released into your body um, to get control of yourself. Uh, those got released and I started to get my senses back. And by that, and at that point, that's when I kind of was able to start thinking a little bit clearer. Um, and yeah, I knew, you know, I could feel my legs um, were damaged. I didn't know what, to what extent. Um, I, I looked, you know, I looked at my hands. Everybody probably does this. They look at their hands first. And every man next will check their groin to make sure everything is connected. And, you know, you kind of go just down lower and lower. Right. And I sat up to, uh, 
I sat up to check my legs, but I got about two thirds of the way up and I decided against uh, looking any further because I was afraid that I was feeling okay, you know, for having your legs blown off and having a shot of morphine in me. I, I, I felt like if I stood, if I sat up and I looked, it was going to be like when you were a kid and you skin your knee and it doesn't hurt until you look at it. Right. I, yeah. I was afraid I was going to revert to that. So I just decided to sit up and, and I just laid back instead. I didn't look, but then I asked the, my, my fellow Marines there with me, you know, is it a, is my injury above or below the knee? And they told me it was a below the knee at the time at the site of injury. They said it was below the knee. Um, but what happens with amputations that are caused by IEDs is that dust and dirt and bacteria and grime gets into the injury. And a lot of the times the doctors have to amputate higher because to save your life from the, the, the infection that results from that, or uh, I don't, and I don't know what the case was for me, but the IED could have shredded my below the knee body parts so much that there wasn't going to be really any feasible tissue to attach a prosthetic socket to. Right. So the orthopedic surgeon kind of takes that into account and they say, all right, well, there's nothing here to attach a prosthetic. So he's probably going to be better off if we amputate above the knee. I don't know what the case was, but ultimately I'm, I became above the knee. And so are you taken to, where are you taken from Afghanistan? Are you taken to Germany? Yeah, so I went uh, site of injury to Camp, Leather, Camp Leatherneck to Bagram Air Force Base, still in Afghanistan, to Launchstuhl in Germany, and then to uh, Bethesda, Maryland, which is where all you know Navy and uh, Marines will go first. And then after you recover and kind of get stabilized, then you get sent to generally Walter Reed or Balboa or uh, Bamsey. And when, or if your injury isn't as like an amputation, you can go to VA hospitals wherever you want. Right. So when is the first time that you talk to your parents? Uh, the first time I talked to my parents was when they were bringing me, I got to Bethesda and they, they load you up into these really giant ambulances because they have four or five guys that they're bringing in on stretchers. And so it was probably a, an ambulance. It was about half the size of a tractor trailer. Mm-hmm. and they bring that thing in and there's doctors and nurses all waiting for you at the entrance to the hospital to come and get you in really quickly. But they tell your parents and your family and your friends that you're going to be coming in on this uh, ambulance at this time. So they can kind of line up outside and greet you. Yeah. You know, greet. Uh, you kind of, you're much too high to really have much of a conversation. But all I remember from that moment, wheeled down and my mom, uh, my stepdad and my dad being there and saying, you know, we're here, we're here. And then, you know, but they kind of wheeled me off and that's where the, the only chance they got to talk. And then the next time I remember any, anybody was when I was in the ICU. Um, and it's just at this point, most people are very, have very vague memories because there's so much dilaudid and morphine and all these other things um, going through your body that it's just like flashes of uh, memories. So when you get to Germany, is the, is the purpose there in Germany just to get you stabilized, to be able to get you back to the States? I mean, there's no, there's no amputation taking place there, is there? Or is it, we're just going to get him to the place where you can get him back? There can be. I think they did my first revision in Bagram. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they certainly have surgical suites. Um, they started amputating on me rather quickly. Um, 
I think when you get to Germany, the idea is to get you stabilized and wait for the next aircraft over. I was only there for 12 hours. Oh, wow. Um, generally, generally you don't, you're not supposed to wake up or anything. I woke up very briefly. Um, but they'll amputate. I don't think it's out of the question for them to amputate if they need to or to do a rev revision if they need to. Um, but I think the idea is to get you back to Bethesda as quickly as possible. And so what is the first time, you know, again, you're on a lot of different drugs uh, to keep you stable, to keep you pain-free. Do you remember the first time that you are cognizant enough to fully understand what has just happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understood it to some degree at the site of injury, you know, I, I knew I was, my legs were going to be gone. Um, and then further on in Germany, my, my squad leader, I just so happened to be there for his, in, his own injuries that were minor injuries. And he kind of gave me a little bit more details. Hey, you're double above the amputee and your buddy Daniel was hit an hour before you, he's still alive. Uh, and then I don't think I realized I guess I probably didn't really have clear cognizance uh, until after I was out of the ICU, um, which was about a week. So it took me five days to get to uh, Bethesda, and then I was in the ICU for a week. And I knew that I was, I knew that I'd been injured. I knew that I was missing my my body parts, um, but I wasn't really thinking clearly until after I got out of the ICU. It's about twelve days afterwards, probably. And at that point, that's when I was able to, you know, kind of look down and see and start to move my legs around, my limbs around. And um, it kind of, I guess I was told that I was a double above the amputee before, but I hadn't uh, totally understood it completely, if that makes sense. And then once I was able to start thinking clear, that's when I kind of was able to process it. And so... What's that moment like for you where you actually look down and you see, you know, the extent of your injuries, you see that your legs are gone. What's the first thing that goes through your head at that point? Um, yeah, so it's actually at site of injury. Um, the first thing that went through my head was that I was going to be in a chair for the rest of my life. I was going to have to have my mom looking after me for the rest of my life. I figured I was going to be basically helpless for the rest of my life, you know, a very naive and misinformed um, outlook on what life as a double above me amputee and life in a wheelchair would be like. And so at that point, kind of high on morphine and in shock, I was, I was asking every Marine around me just to finish me off. I was just, just, you know, just put a bullet through me and end it now. And obviously they said no. And obviously I'm, glad that they said no. <laughs> um, and, but by the time I woke up in the ICU and then kind of got my senses back um, in the ward, I had, I had accepted it. You know, I'd, I don't know if I processed well unconscious, um, but I had accepted it and I knew that I needed to, to move on with my life because I was alive. I woke up and I recognized that my heart was still beating, my lungs were still breathing, my brain was still thinking, and they were gonna to continue to do that now. Um, and so I wasn't going to die, so I needed to make the most of my life. And I'm saying this in retrospect, uh, but I think these are kind of the, the, 
unconscious thoughts that I was unconscious realizations that I was having. And yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a strange feeling to look down and see that, you know, parts of your body are missing. Um, but I suppose I just have a really uncanny knack for being able to accept situations quite quickly, process them and move on. And so it kind of just became normal for me almost immediately. It feels like. So you, you leave Bethesda, you show up at Walter Reed and you're, I mean, I, I will say this, you know, um, unfortunately Fortunately or fortunately, I know a lot of men and women who have uh, suffered from IEDs and, you know, use prosthetics to get around. And, and yeah. I think that our, our military does a fantastic job of just saying, okay, this is what comes next. Here's your prosthetic, how you get walking, here's how you get going. And, and it seems like you followed that same path when you got to Walter Reed. It was just, let's get you fitted. And they didn't really give you the opportunity to even have the thoughts about I'm, I'm just going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the opportunity to have those thoughts, but I, mean, I think one thing that the military recognizes is that it's, it's soldiers, it's Marines, et cetera. They need a mission. Um, and they give you that, that mission is there immediately. Your mission, your new mission is recovery. Should you choose to accept it? Your new mission is, you're going to recover now. And they already had the infrastructure in place. Now, maybe in 2003, 2001, it took a little bit more time for people to get in. But by 2010, that system had been in place for a long time. It was very streamlined. Um, and on top of that, there were hundreds of amputees and other people that had been injured in the clinic going in there every single day. So guys that had been there for a year, year and a half before me too. And guys had just gotten there. So I had the opportunity to just look around the clinic and I could see all these people that had been there. So I could just basically just looking into my future. You know, I could look over there and see a guy that had been there for three months. Okay, that's what I'm going to be doing in three months. That's what I'm going to be doing in a year. That's what I'm going to be doing in a year and a half. And so having us all there, that camaraderie, that brotherhood, um, that helps you, well, that helped me uh, continue or just recognize that you know, there was a future and, and this is what it's going to look like if I chose to work hard enough. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that that, that that brotherhood that's happening at Walter Reed, and I've been there several times and visited mm -hmm. a lot of service members that had had catastrophic injuries. And, um, you know, you walk into the PT clinics there and um, it's just a bunch of people that are looking at their new normal. And um, yeah. you can really kind of feel that brotherhood in the room when they're all working together. And, and, I, and I know what you're saying about seeing people in the different phases. Um, one of the things that you did is you started to have a natural inclination to rowing. And mm -hmm. you're, you're biking, um, you're setting challenges for yourself, biking, running, rowing. Mm -hmm. When... When do you get to the point that, because it's one thing to go through an injury like this and to say, I'm going to walk again, right? I'm going yeah. to walk on these prosthetics. And I would think for many people that just getting to that point is, is a, first of all, incredible accomplishment. And so when do you decide that 
your next mission is going to go beyond just walking. Um, you start to get into biking, you start to get into running, you start to get into rowing. And, you know, I'd have to think that for most people suffering that sort of injury and just being able to get back up and using prosthetics, I mean, that's accomplishment enough. Um, yeah. You decide that you're going to go farther, that you're actually going to set your sights on like athletic endeavors, which, which is essentially what you did. Yeah. So, uh, Early on um, in my recovery at Walter Reed, I, I was trying to find new ways that I could I could work out, get into the gym, do a really hard workout because I really liked doing that uh, before my injury, and that led me to kind of start researching disabled sports, you know, sports that disabled people did, and that led me to find out about the Paralympics, and then that kind of led me to realize that rowing is a sport called para rowing in the in the Paralympics, and so I knew that I remember that rowing was a tough workout. Um, and so at that time I kind of thought, well, maybe the Paralympics could be in my future someday. And, you know, I, I had always been kind of fascinated with the life of an athlete, uh, with the dedication, uh, to one task and, and going to the Olympics and that kind of thing. So it always interested me. So I kind of saw it as a, a an opportunity to live that kind of lifestyle that I wasn't going to have before. Um, and so by, you know, a year and a half later, uh, I learned how to walk and do all these things and it came time for me to retire and I learned how to row. I decided that I liked it. I decided I found a rowing partner, uh, which I needed uh, to go to the Paralympics in 2012. And we had agreed that we both wanted to, you know, put forth the effort and the dedication that was going to take to make it there. And so we moved down to Florida um, to Orlando and started training. And was your rowing partner a, a veteran as well? No, um, my rowing partner, Oksana, she uh, is also a double above amputee um, as a result of birth defects. Um, she was actually in an orphanage in Ukraine and was adopted by her mother. Um, she's somebody that you should have on the podcast, actually. Um, but she was adopted by her mother and brought it over here. Um, and it just so happened that our, our coaches knew each other. And her legs had been amputated, you know, when she was younger. And she had been rowing for a long, a lot longer than me. But our coaches knew each other and thought we might uh, work well as a, um, as a rowing team. And so, what was that like? I mean, I, I have to imagine that, you know, this is just this is a year after your injury. You're now living yeah. in Florida, training to row in the Paralympics. I mean, the the shift that your life has taken in 365 days is beyond. What, uh, yeah. what does that look like? What's the training that you're going through? And, and are you thinking at the time, again, we we're talking about all of these incredible challenges that are put in front of you um, and you're just knocking them down. You're slaying them and you're, you're going on to the next one. But talk to us a little bit about the moments of weakness you had, because I think it's, it's important for people to understand that this just did not all come as easily as it looks when you Google Rob Jones on Wikipedia. You know, there, there were definitely steps along the way. And, and what, over the course of that year, talk to us about the biggest challenges that you had leading up to that uh, moving to Florida. Yeah, I mean, I like I said before, I'm I'm kind of I, somehow I have this natural ability to accept 
a situation quickly. So I, I would say I had less psychological battles than, than most people have. And maybe that's why I was able to kind of do these kind of quickly turn it around and, and do these physical feats was because I, I wasn't using energy on the, um, the five stages of grief. You know, I kind of skipped to the last stage. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a level of frustration from time to time that did um, arise when I failed to do something, when I couldn't do something that I wanted to do. Um, it would be frustrating and, you know, I would have to recenter myself and, and, and recognize that the reason that I can't do this is because I've just had this big injury. And yeah, so there were, there were times of frustration, um, but they were very brief uh, when they did happen. Um, because like I said, I kind of quickly recognized, all right, well, the reason you can't do this is because you don't have legs right now. And so um, you just have to work harder and, and practice and learn how to use these legs. And then you'll be able to do this later when you try and, you know, just get help for now um, and, and be fine with getting help from somebody because these people want to help you. Um, and yeah, I think, I thought, I think that answers the question. Yeah. You answered the question. But besides that, you know, the physical stuff, it just took daily work. I mean, I went into the clinic. I started about an hour a day. And then by the time I retired, I was in there for five, six hours a day. And so, you know, it just took a lot of grueling work, a lot of trial and error, a lot of being embarrassed from falling down, um, and a lot of, you know, checking my ego and, and these kinds of things that everybody needs to do when they're learning something new and they're, and they're trying to be the best that they can be at something. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to be embarrassed in front of a room full of hundreds of people all looking at you. And every time somebody fell down, like every single head in the whole room looked at you to see what you were going to do. And all you, you just got back up and you continued walking. Um, cause everybody in that room had fallen down at least once. Exactly. And so you end up training you're training with Oksana and you guys have a pretty awesome uh, rowing career together while a little bit short lived. And I think it's because you probably wanted to jump on to the next thing in front of you, but uh, I'm looking you, you guys, um, let's see. Uh, you took home the bronze in the Paralympics in 2012. Is that right? So Correct. later or two years later, and then you continued. And in 2013, you placed fourth in the world rowing championships. I mean, that's pretty correct. And, um, and then you decide that that thought in your head about riding your bike across the country, you're going to do that next. So you ride your bike across the country. You do this, this ride, uh, was 5,180 miles long. And Mm -hmm. is that, that a, is there a lot of solitude in that ride? Is there a lot of time for you to think? Um, tell us about it. Yeah, there's a lot of solitude because I did it by myself. I had my, um, it was just me and my little brother. Um, he was driving, I had bought this uh, U-Haul, a 17-foot U-Haul truck uh, that had maybe 250,000 miles on it. <laughs> um, and I, I, didn't know, I didn't even know if it was going to make it the remaining 5,000 miles that it needed to go. But, um, yeah, I mean, and we started in Bar Harbor and I would ride 30, 35 miles a day, um, Bar Harbor, Maine. And I rode down to Virginia, down just north of Richmond, Virginia. And then I rode west to San Francisco and then down the coast to Camp Pendleton. And it was during the winter time. 
uh, of the, the winter of the polar vortex uh, in 2013. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so there weren't a whole lot of other people out there riding with me. There were from time to time, but it was mostly you know 99%, 98% uh, just by myself with my brother in the truck behind me. So there's a lot of solitude. Um, and I wish there had been, I had the energy and the uh, mental capacity to do a lot of thinking and, and self-reflection uh, on the bike. Um, but usually I was just focused on not falling off the bike and um, trying to get into the right gear for the next hill. Um, so I can't say I did a whole lot of um, self-reflection uh, on the bike. It all kind of happens, you know, after the fact when I have, you know, look back on it and then have time to think. But in the moment, um, my mental capacity is on, you know, on the actual thing that I'm doing usually. In the moment, you're cold and you don't want to fall. And yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering when, uh, I, I keep checking, you know, when the, uh, when I can be done for the day, like what's my mileage uh, now so that I can, so I can knock off for the day and what am I going to eat tonight? And so I love the, I love the chronological order of, uh, the way you put these physical feats in front of you. So it's like, all right, um, rowing Paralympian, check. Uh, ride my bike across the country, check. Um, 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 cities. Oh, by the way, this is all consecutive. And yeah. this is not just in the United States. It's in the UK, Canada, and the US. Who comes up with that idea? I mean... <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it was my, I came up with that idea because it was kind of just a, a recreation or a different perspective on other people that had done similar things. So when I was in therapy, learning how to ride a bike, so one of the things I did to kind of keep myself motivated was I read about endurance athletes. I came in very fascinated with endurance athletes, people that did the race across America or walked to the South Pole or ran ultra marathons and things like this. And it just really fascinated me. And part of the reason that I ended, I stopped rowing too was because it just something that just didn't feel right uh, when I was rowing. I didn't feel, because I joined the Marine Corps to, to exemplify courage, brotherhood, and selflessness. And as much as I enjoyed rowing, it was a very important part of my recovery. It was, it was mostly about, it was about me winning a race. Um, you know, felt great to represent my country and all these things, but it was, it was more about, you know, me winning the race and getting the medal. Mm -hmm. And so that, that didn't feel right. And so that's kind of why I started to do that. That's why I did the bike ride. Um, and I created Rob Jones journey, uh, was because I wanted to have a selfless purpose, but, but at the same time have this, uh, physical endeavor to go after, because that's something that really I, I enjoy. And, and, uh, it, it pushes me and I learn from it. And so after the bike ride, I actually tried to make the Paralympics again in 2016 and uh, triathlon, um, but I didn't make it um, for a variety of reasons um, because I, I was trying to compete in a higher category than I should have been. Um, but after that failure, um, during the course of the, of the training for triathlon, I, I kind of reconnected with this natural ability that I had for running. Like I'd always been a pretty good runner. And I was able to get down to an 18 minute 5k, which is pretty, which is the Marine maxing out the Marine Corps PFT for the run. Pre-injury. Pre, uh, no, post-injury. Post-injury. Yeah. 
um, while I was training for triathlon, that's when I was able to do it, but it was on, I was only running like twice a week. So I kind of redetermined, rediscovered this natural ability for running. Um, and also, you know, kind of serendipitously during the course of my training, I decided to break it up a little bit by running the Marine Corps marathon, um, kind of on a whim. I, and when I ran my first one in 2015, I, I didn't do any running besides, Oh, I had never run over five kilometers as an amputee. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of, kind of did it on a whim and I, you know, finished it in four hours and 12 minutes and my whole body cramped up by the end of it. Um, <laughs> but, um, Time for doing so I kind of, yeah. <laughs> so I, I had rediscovered that interest and in, in talent for running. I determined that I could run a marathon and I kind of enjoyed running a marathon. And so after I was, uh, done with triathlon, um, after that failure, I was kind of thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And, you know, I had heard again, serendipitously about this guy, the iron cowboy who was doing 50 Ironmans in 50 States in 50 days. And so, you know, that just, I just kind of remembered that. And I thought, well, what if I did my own little spin on that? And so I determined, uh, 31 marathons in 31 days and 31 cities. Um, also because I noticed on the bike ride, my, my path kind of took me mostly through small towns. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like if I was going to do another fundraiser, it'd probably be better if I did each event in a big city to get as many eyeballs on it as I could. So that's kind of how I came up with the idea. And important to note that everything you're doing from your bike ride to uh, running 31 miles, like not only were you doing it to challenge yourself, but you were also raising money for incredible causes that support uh, our nation's military and first responder communities. So, um, and I'm not talking five, ten thousand dollars I'm talking hundreds and thousands of dollars that you have raised. It's, it's pretty incredible. So you get into, um, I, this is not uh, me and my brother are gonna run, you know, he's gonna support me. You've, you've, you have to put together a pretty big team to help you accomplish this mission. Um, yeah. Do you ever get to a point in those 31 days that you think, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Like, <laughs> I, I do, or are you just cruising by like, I'm loving this? Um, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say I loved it. It was definitely, it was a grind and it was very repetitive. Um, but my, my thought process when I started was, okay, I'm going to run the one in London when my first one, and that's going to be my fastest one. Mm-hmm. And then by the, by the time I get to the 31st one, I'm going to be like crawling across the finish line, like a guy, you know, emerging from the desert. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I'm just going to barely finish and like reach my fingertips out and cross the finish line like that. Yeah. I, that's why I figured it's going to be, det- I was just going to deteriorate up until that point. And I kind of followed that same pattern for the first four days um, until around, I guess, Boston, maybe Toronto, Detroit, somewhere in there. And I noticed my times were actually getting, I was getting a little bit faster uh, after that fifth or sixth marathon. And that, that trend kind of continued all the way to Chicago and Chicago was my 10th one. It was, it was my fastest marathon. And then, um, so I kind of recognized that my body was actually starting to feel, it was starting to adapt and it was actually starting to feel, you know, pretty decent. Um, and that trend continued all the way out to Seattle and down to, um, and down to Cal and down to Los Angeles, 
all the way out to um, to Texas. And when in Texas, I hit a big, this really big heat wave um, in Houston and San Antonio, then Houston, then Dallas. Like it was really hot in all three of those places, back to back to back. And one of the th- one of my kryptonites is uh, is humid heat. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it, it hurts me a lot is because a as an amputee, I don't have the the capacity to dissipate heat as much and then my legs are also encased in prosthetic sockets so half my body isn't sweating basically right um and then all that kind of mugginess inside the prosthetic socket and the friction kind of starts to rub on the skin um and so i left those three um cities with kind of these blisters that started to form on the outside of my on my stumps and I wasn't really able to, I had this system in place before that where I was constantly putting chamois cream on them, drying them off, taking little breaks. Um, but after that, those three kind of put me over the edge that I wasn't going to be able to go back the other way and let those heal. They were just going to kind of maintain or get a little bit worse throughout the rest of the time. And so that was the, the first point where when I got up, to uh, go run in the morning. I was like, okay, here we go. I had to kind of start to really um, do some self-talk. And then when I got all the way to uh, Nashville, in Nashville, I injured my back because I slipped on a wooden bridge and I fell really hard on my butt. Mm -hmm. And I finished that marathon feeling fine. But then when I woke up in the next day in, in Atlanta, my fourth to last marathon, I woke up and my back was just, it was killing me. I was, uh, I could barely sit up. Um, and so at that point, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what to think. Um, all I knew was I just had to get up and get out of the RV and just see what was, you know, see what was up. So I put my legs on and get out of the RV and there's probably a hundred, 150 people standing outside the RV, you know, just waiting to, to greet me and run with me. Um, not all of them, but you know, a lot of them were going to run with me. And so at that point, I just, you know, I, I kind of made the decision regardless of how bad my back hurts. I'm just going to have to to withstand the, the, the sharp pain that shot up the middle of my back every time I landed on my right foot. And I was going to have to do that about 80,000 more times. <laughs> and, um, but I was doing it because, you know, the reason I did the marathons was because I was trying to create a story, a positive story about a veteran that experienced trauma and and came back and thrived from it, became stronger from it. Um, and if I didn't finish that, if I didn't finish the story, if I didn't do the last one, yeah, it'd be impressive, but it wouldn't be as powerful. And so I just had to do it and I had to endure. And what was the last marathon that you did as part of that journey? The last one was uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, was it? Um, it wasn't. And so none, none of my marathons, I should specify, none of the marathons I did were sanctioned. It was just me. So, for example, in D.C., we parked our RV right next to the Lincoln Memorial, and I walked out, and I did loops of that section between the Lincoln Memorial and the World War II Memorial. Okay. And so I just kind of did loops around that section until I got to 26 miles, 26.2 miles. And it was incredible. You know, I was doing it um, with – there were guys from Afghanistan there. There were guys from Iraq there. There were my nurses, so my nurses were there. I had my physical therapist there. Uh, my family was there, friends were there and everybody was seeing me do complete this 
oh, this incredible journey. My wife was, you know, my wife had been there. My wife, Pam, had been there the whole time on. She was, I couldn't have done it without her. She was running the whole operation. All I did was just run uh, my body. And my mom was my massage therapist in the RV. And so she was there for the whole thing too. Um, so I was doing it in front of them and um, completing the story and kind of showing everybody that um, they probably already recognized this before, but you know, I was, I'm good. You know, you don't have to worry about me anymore. Um, and that was, that was the finish line. And then we just kind of, uh, had a little, had a little get together that night. The commandant of the Marine Corps called me and said, congratulations, uh, went on Fox and friends the next day and Megan Kelly the next day. And, um, yeah, it was really cool. I got to talk to, uh, Joe Biden about, about veterans and about my, um, uh, my thing. Cause we had just we had both happened to be on, um, on, uh, Megan Kelly at this, you know, at, this, at the same show. Huh. Um, and yeah, we, I mean, I still, people still, um, come up to me some from time to time and like I was driving around, my wife and I were going out to breakfast yesterday and I was at a stop sign. And somebody saw me through the front glass of my windshield and said, are you, aren't you Rob Jones? You ran all those marathons. And so, um, the story is why I did it. And the story is still out there. Um, and you know, I don't, I always tell people I don't care. You know, I don't care if somebody remembers my name for being done it. All I care about is that people say, Hey, you remember that guy that ran 31 marathons in 31 days that time? And the other person goes, yeah, I remember that. What was that? What was his name? And the the original person says, I don't, I don't remember either, but I know that he was a Marine and that's all I care about. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, it's your story represents what's, possible and capable for this generation of war fighters that don't all come back the way they left, you know, and, and, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to live fulfilling lives and overcome despite the challenges that are put in front of them. And I think you're an incredible example of that. Um, You know, I don't know if you remember, but this past October, you ran by me in the Marine Corps Marathon. I think it was, mm-hmm. we were at like Fells Point. I think we were like going out and it was right yeah. when it had started like torrentially downpouring. <laughs> I was actually feeling pretty good. I was kind of laughing and, and I was running with uh, one of my best friends who had never run a marathon before. Mm-hmm. And she was massively in her head. And yeah. Yeah, you know, and I'm trying to videotape. I'm like, let's go on Facebook Live. And she's like, turn the camera off. This is BS. Like, I don't know why I let you talk me into these things. Now look at, you know, I mean, she was <laughs> place. And you came up and, I mean, you scorched us, but I'm like, Rob, you know, and uh, uh, you just had the biggest smile on your face and you're like, hey, and we took a selfie together and you know, we talked for a couple minutes and then you left us in the dust. Um, yeah. But uh, I remember turning to her and like her whole demeanor changed. And she was very familiar with you through running the 9-11 Heroes runs with us. So she knew right. who you were. And, you know, it was one of those things where just, it was that needed perspective. And I think, you know, the 31 marathons in 31 days, I think you probably provided that for more people than you can even imagine. Um, And so it's so incredibly powerful. I want to talk to you about your your personal mantra. And I'd love to 
to explain what this mantra means to you and others. And it's, and it's called use the weight. You've mm. actually done a, a Ted talk on it. And yeah. just give us a brief, brief synopsis of what that means and, and why that's your, your personal motto. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's a way to look at things. It's a, it's a different way to look at challenges and stresses in life. Cause the, if you're alive, you're going to be facing unexpected challenges, unexpected stresses, unexpected, unexpected difficulties. And so when those things arrive, it's a lot like having a weight. Uh, it's like a lot like having a barbell on your shoulders when you're in the gym, the barbell is there, whether you like it or not. And it's heavy and you're not sure if you can lift it. And so at that point you have, you have two options. The first option is you can simply sit there and resist the weight and hold on to it for as long as you can. Um, but eventually as you do that, you, you know, you can resist the weight, resist the difficulties, resist the stress, uh, for as long as you can. But over time you realize that your energy is finite Your energy to hold that weight or resist that weight. And those stresses is, is finite. And so it starts to weigh you down and more and more and more until eventually you get to a point where you can't hold it up anymore and you fall on your face. And that, that weight is, that stress is pinned across your back. It's holding you down. You can't move it. You can't do anything. You can't help yourself. You can't help anybody. You can't do anything. Or your other option is you, when that weight, the stresses get on your shoulders, you strict press the weight over your head and you use it and you do it again and again and again. And every time you lift that weight, your body adapts to it very, just a little bit, but it adapts to it more and more. Um, and as you keep doing that, as you keep using that weight or that stress or that challenge, um, you would, you start to adapt to it. And now because you adapted to that original weight, now you can do, you can lift even more weight. You can handle bigger stresses, bigger challenges, bigger difficulties. Um, and eventually it gets to a point where there's not enough weight in that gym. Uh, there's not a stress big enough in the world, a challenge that you can't face and, um, and defeat. And so we have to go out and start you have to actually go create the weight. You have to be like Bruce Willis and Unbreakable, and you have to put paint cans on the end of the barbell because you ran out of weights. Um, you have to go out and find ways to make your life more difficult, more challenging, and create challenges for yourself so that you can continue to grow. Um, and and you know, and that's it. That's use the weight. Um, and I also have another part of that now too that I'm, I've been thinking about, where sometimes we get into a situation where the weight the original weight that's on our, on our shoulders, um, or the, the difficulty is to, it's too challenging. We can't lift it. So we don't know how to use it or we can't use it yet. And so that's where you have in the gym. A lot of the times you have a spotter, uh, you have somebody that helps you. And, and when you're lifting like when you're doing a heavy bench press and you get stuck, maybe two thirds of the way up your spotter, they don't just grab it and, they, and lift it off of you. They, what do they do? They, they put the one, one finger, they put one finger under the bar and that's it. And that one finger is all you need to, to finish the lift. And now the whole time they're just going, it's all you, all you, bro, all you, bro. And, True. and that's, and sometimes that's what we need. And that person that's spotting you. So a lot of the times people feel, um, they let their pride or their ego get in the way of asking for that help of asking for that spot when they need it. Cause they feel like they don't want to be a burden. Oh, this guy's working out over there. I don't want to bother him. Um, but your friends and your family, I mean, from my personal experience, I love being able to help a friend or a family member 
or, or a brother, I love it when, when somebody asks me for advice or somebody says, would you mind helping me do this thing? You know, I love it. And I, I, it makes me feel good. And so I think we need to remember that too, is that when you ask help for somebody, these people that love you, these people in your life that, that care about you, they want to help you. They, it's not a, it's not a burden on them. Um, so remember that when you, so when you, when you do recognize that you need a spot, you're not afraid to ask for it. Um, and so that's kind of, that's the mantra. I love that. The spotter. And it's so true. They put that one finger and you're like, all right, well, come <laughs> to me, you know, and, and really <laughs> the finger's just touching the bar. Um, yeah. I love that analogy. That's, that's awesome. Let's talk briefly about what you've, uh, dove into just recently, which is the, the world of politics. And you, yeah. um, you just recently uh, put a run in for Congress. Um, mm -hmm. You lost in a really heavily contested primary, but uh, mm -hmm. you finished really strong. Um, we were rooting you on from over here in Pennsylvania. But what made you decide to take that leap? Because it's a scary one. You know, I'm, I'm an elected official in my hometown. I've served for about nine years and you know people often ask me you know when are you going to take the next step and i'm like oh, i don't want to take the next step because it's yeah in our world today it's so divisive and you know and it's scary and i wonder what made you i mean right now pre-running for congress you were rob jones beloved um paralympian and you know as soon as you say i'm i'm running for congress you automatically yeah. have enemies. I mean, it's just, it yeah. doesn't matter. And so tell us about that experience. And, and I'd love to know, are you, is that it? Or is, is there more? It was, it was, it was a hard, it was a difficult transition because I was, I was used to being a guy that everybody rooted for. Everybody wanted me to succeed in everything that I did because what I was doing was pure. Um, and then, yeah, when you, when you start running for politics, pretty much 50% of people don't like you now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's good that we talk you know we talk about it briefly because uh it was a very brief <laughs> attempt um but the reason that i did it was because over and over all the way you know from before 2016 really but more in 2016 after that election people would just i just kept hearing over and over oh i can't believe this is all this is the best we can do this is the best we can do there's 300 million people in this country this is the best we can do and I just, you know, I, I, I didn't really, I thought about it in 2016, but I, I was already on my way to the month of marathons at that point. But when I finished, I kept hearing it still. And I said, well, you know, the only way that we're going to have the best that we can't actually can do is if, you know, the best decide to run for office. And I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to say that I'm the best, but maybe I could be a person that strives to be a little bit more closer to that ideal than than the people that classically enter into politics. And so what I recognized after doing an assessment was that we needed somebody, we need as many people as possible that want to bring selflessness um, back to politics instead of, you know, just looking out for your party or looking out for your political career, actually doing the things um, doing the thing because you want to do, to do good for your community, regardless of how that affects your personal life or your political life. So if that means you have to sacrifice your next election or to do something right, well, you have to be willing to do that. 
Um, and yeah, like, I don't know how much, how, how much, how far you want to go into the, into the story. Um, but that's, that's kind of why I started doing it. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, kind of incredible that you took that dive to step in the arena. And I think we are guilty as a country of saying like, I mean, come on, they can't get anyone better, but you know, there are very few that are willing to take that leap to know how tough it is to know that you are going to alienate people. Sometimes people that are close to you, you know, that right away, as soon as you step into that world, um, it's a different world. And, and um, I, I give you a tremendous amount of credit for, for taking yeah. that leap. Do you have, do you have any more political aspirations? Uh, I don't think that I do. Um, and to your point, it's, it's about return. I, I also recognize that we need to return civility. We need civility and we need respect in politics. And so that's part of what led to, you know, I was, I was kind of coming at it from, I kind of, it's almost like um, political genetics. So when you are a sprinter, for example, you have your genetics that you're born with. And that puts you kind of, if you didn't, didn't do any training whatsoever, it kind of puts you on this scale of you're up here and somebody else is down here, just based off your genetics alone. And then you can work harder and get higher and higher until you get, you know, until you're Usain Bolt winning gold medals. And so I kind of started with certain political genetics um, that I had to overcome. And these political genetics kind of were, were good for a general election um, in that I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I, I was a Republican. I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I had written in General uh, Mattis uh, as my vote. And that was widely known. Um, and so, you know, that was something that I had to overcome in the primary. Right. Um, and just my beliefs in general on, on a variety of issues, they put me more, a little bit more towards the center. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're in a primary, those, those hinder you, but they help you in the, in the general election. And one thing I say, one thing I will say about it is a lot of people say, well, you can't complain unless you, unless you vote. And that's true. But I would also take it one step further, I would say you can't complain unless you're willing to step into the arena. Uh, unless you're willing to, to run for public office yourself, you can't complain. And, you and I would also encourage... Too. It doesn't just have to be running yeah. for Congress. I think that's such Good a thing. point. Like, you have to yeah. step into the arena. You have to get involved and be a part of the solution in your community. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's step yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. In some capacity, yeah, you don't have to run for president or whatever, but get involved somehow. Um, and I will say one way that we can get involved that I've, I think I re have recognized that has kind of put us into this position where every four years or two years we're saying this is the best we can do is that people don't tend to participate in primaries um, because it's a party process and most people don't, they kind of overlook that. They vote in the general election when we have the two options. But we're not voting in the primary when there's six, seven, eight people that might be running for this position. And unfortunately, in the primary, everybody caters to the most stalwart um, team Republican or team Democrat um, that is that is running. And they all cater to that. And that's kind of what the people, the, the, currently the people that tend to vote in primary elections, that's what they want. They want to see the guy or the girl that is just all team Republican, no, like who's, who's the Philadelphia uh, Eagles biggest rival, the, the cowboy, I don't know, who is it? 
Cowboys. Cowboys. Yeah, it's like they just want the most diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan. The other people just want the most diehard Cowboys fan. And if there's anybody that says, well, the Cowboys, you know, that was that was a catch. I admit that that was a catch that time. Yeah. And they just go, you know, oh, they think that you're evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. And so base, you know, just get the base out. We know that the base, we know how they're going to vote 100%. And I mean, get out there and vote. Every single person needs to get out there and they need to become educated about our candidates. You know, yeah. I, I think that's important too. Like learn about our candidates, learn about where they stand on, just because you're a Republican doesn't mean you line up with the, the Republican that's running with you in a primary. You guys are very different people. And, and it's so important. I always say, like, make sure that you educate yourself on each and every person you're voting for down the entire ballot. Um, yeah. No I mean, what. I kind of equate it to this. Like most people in, most people politically, they, they are kind of, it's kind of like football. So most people that watch football, they're kind of, they're casual football fans. They have a team that they like, but if their team doesn't win on Sunday or whatever, uh, it doesn't ruin their week. Whereas the people that vote in primaries are a lot like uh, Ryan Mannion being a Philadelphia Eagles fan. If the, the Eagles lose, it ruins their week. And they're watching the draft. They're looking at the stats. They are talking about it all week, the whole season. Um, that's that's what that's the people that are selecting um, the nominees from both parties. So yeah, of course we're going to end up with two people that are as far left and as far right as you can get because the only people that are that are selecting these two nominees are as far left and as far right as we can get. And it's kind of like if you send you're from the people that only vote in the general election. Your, your wife says, I'm going to the grocery store to get dinner. She says, what do you want? And you go, I don't know, whatever. I don't care. And then she comes back with, you know, chicken breast. And you're like, oh, chicken breast. I hate chicken breast. But she asked you what you wanted. And you didn't participate in the process of selecting what you might want to have. And so you really have no right to complain unless you, unless you participate in that process. Yeah, it's so true. And I think even more true to that is that most of the population is the the casual football fan, right? That's in the, so um, it like, that's the group that needs to become more active. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's because uh, people select the person will have more normal candidates in the future, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's, that's what I, that's one of the things I've learned. I haven't done a full assessment of, uh, the, the, the race yet, but that's one of the things I've definitely learned. And I do, I don't have any more political aspirations. Um, cause I kind of feel like I can probably have a bigger impact going back to, you know, what I'm, my wheelhouse, what I'm, what I've been doing, what I'm good at telling that story. Um, and then I'm going to start focusing on the next generation. I'm going to be opening up a summer camp uh, for kids in my area. And so I want to start taking all these lessons that I've learned and putting them into children's brains um, so that they can kind of become the future leaders. That's awesome. First I'm hearing of yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Um, <laughs> and we definitely have to partner on that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 
Hispanic Foundation has a program called Character Does Matter, and we actually have veterans. Rob is is trained, one of our trained veteran mentors that go out and speak to um, our nation's youth and share with them stories of leadership and courage and selfless service uh, in a way to pass those character traits down to our next generation. And did I get this correct? I, and I'm taking this just from little tidbits off your social media. Are you writing a book as well right now? Yeah, I'm, I've been working on my, been working on my memoir probably since uh, 2012. <laughs> but uh, I was working on it in earnest. So I, I wrote the first draft before um, announcing the run for Congress. And now that I'm not doing that anymore, I'm working on the second draft in earnest. So hopefully, you know, next year, um, we'll be able to all have it released, a memoir, and then uh, we can go on a book tour together. Okay, that's a deal. <laughs> I'm in. Um, and lastly, I think it's important to note that we didn't really talk too much about your family in life. You, you talked a little bit about your wife who was with you on your journey for the 31 marathons in 31 days. You also are a new father. And what's fatherhood like for you? Um, it's amazing. You know, um, I, I should say, you know, my, uh, just speak briefly about how incredible my wife is. I met her at the 2012 Paralympics. Um, we just so happened to end up, she was rowing for Great Britain. Um, and we just so happened to end up in the same casino bar. And I'm, you know, just incredibly lucky that I decided to go out to that bar that night. Um, and, you know, I couldn't have done the month of marathons without her. Couldn't have done the bike ride without her because, uh, you know, like I said, in the month marathon, she ran the whole operation. Um, and, you know, she was my, my most trusted confidant, um, in the, in the hard times. Um, and yeah, I mean, and she's just an amazing woman. Um, I mean, she did, she did a home birth here. She, she gave birth to Harry in our house. Um, no pain medication, um, just a, a complete badass, uh, you know, 18 hours of labor, just, she, he came out on the couch, uh, you know, it's just, and she, she wanted to do that, you know, from, from day one, when she got pregnant, she's, I want to do this at home. And I was scared at first, but, you know, she brought me around, uh, just with her strength and yeah, it, it's incredible. I mean, it gives you a whole new purpose. It gives you, uh, it gives me, um, that at another, a whole other level, because I have this other person that is depending on me to be what he needs me to be um, at any given moment. And so that gives me, you know, what I've also learned is the best way to overcome anything in life and, and accomplish anything in life is to have a selfless purpose that drives you to accomplish that or that requires you to accomplish it. So um, when I have a difficulty in my life now, I can just remember that Harry and, and my wife are there and they need me to, to get over whatever this, this uh, difficulty is. And so, and that gives you all the strength that you could possibly need. That gives a mother the, the ability to fight a polar bear uh, if she has to and, and win in order to defend her child. So um, that's what it does for me. And it's, it's amazing. And Harry is super cute. Um, <laughs> recently a picture of him in uh, his little TMF gear and oh my gosh, he's, He's adorable. So congratulations. Yeah. Rob, this has been awesome. Um, I want to wrap our conversation up with the same question I ask each one of our guests. Um, you told me you've been listening to the podcast, so you probably already know mm -hmm. the question. But what does living a resilient life look like for you? Yeah, you know, I think 
Um, I'm glad that you brought up use the weight because that is my answer to this question. Um, it's not just about uh, being able to withstand a stress or withstand a challenge. It's figuring out how to absorb that challenge into you and turn it into energy and strength um, and accomplishment for yourself. It's how can this, how can this challenge improve my life um, in a different way? Um, so that's what, that's what it would mean to me. It's use the weight. Um, yeah. Use the weight, look out for the spotters and uh, yeah, have, be willing to get a spotter. Don't be afraid to get a spotter. Um, don't be afraid to be a spotter, right? Right. Don't be, afraid. yeah, be a spotter too. Be a, be a spotter. Don't be afraid to ask for a spotter. Um, proof the lane is another thing that I like to say. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, when I was going into a minefield with my metal detector, I was doing something called clearing the lane, making sure there wasn't an IED under the ground with my metal detector. And every time I took a step, um, I was proving whether or not there was an IED there by stepping on that patch of ground. If it exploded, well, there was one. And that's called proofing the lane. And so what I've tried to do over the course of my, since my recovery is proof the lane for other people, show people what's possible, um, and be that person that's willing to put themselves out there, take the risk, um, you know, endure the danger and the pain uh, in order to show people what can be accomplished. I love it. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, incredible conversation. And I'm, I, for one, am looking forward to what comes next. What's, what's the next challenge and, uh, and how can I be a part of it and be involved? Because everything you do inspires me and you definitely, um, you definitely set the example for a lot of people around you. So thank you so much for being a guest on the Resilient Life podcast. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And um, really appreciate the opportunity. And as far as what's next, you know, the book, finish that up um do more speaking engagements so I, I do speaking um public speaking a lot like what you do um trying to continue to get the message out there the story and then yeah the summer camp and i think we can probably partner on all three of those things uh i've been wanting to talk with you about the summer camp um because i know that you have the the character does matter program and you're going to have a lot of people that might be able to help with that and um yes yeah, so those are those are the kind of the three things and then obviously just being a a dad and a, and a husband to my family awesome Looking forward to it, Rob. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Pretty incredible story. Uh, you know, I've been friends with Rob for a few years now, and just to hear him talk in more detail about what he went through and his path to recovery, and frankly, everything that he has gone on to do, it's, it's pretty inspiring. And I think. You know, for me, the biggest takeaway is this idea of using the weight, using the weight to help propel you to push forward. And I think we can all apply that to our lives each and every day. And um, I thank Rob for being on the show. I thank you for listening. And please like, subscribe, and share the Resilient Life podcast with your friends and family. Thanks so much.